I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Groundbreakers, history makers. Me, Me, I like football, and there's a lot of games around. Things around. When you line them up together, the footy wins hands down. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum (laughs) for another week. I am your host, Emma Race, and it is my greatest of thrills to be here with my football-loving lady, Sanctum Sisters. I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Kate Sia. I'm Nicole Hayes. Hi, I'm Lucy Race. <laughs> Take the looking shop. <laughs> oh, I'm just still coming to groups with the singing. It was pretty special, I thought. Yeah, and em, Emma conducting us like it was an orchestra. <laughs> I left you wanting there. Everyone yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah, sing yeah, up there, yeah. Kazali, but you're going to have to hang on till the very end of <laughs> the show. <laughs> promises, and then promises. we'll let you have it. We have got a massive show lined up for you today. We are going to be joined by Patty Kinnersley, who is um, the CEO of Our Watch and was an amazing footballer in her own right. We're also Look going to be you. speaking to one of the Selwood brothers. <gasps> Which one? It's like a game of guess who. You're going to have to hang around and find out. But before we kick things off with the melee, let's have a chat about things that caught our eye in the AFL-M this week. Ladies, who wants to go first? I just wanted to do a little nod, tip my teeny tiny hat to Collingwood and particularly to, to Nathan Buckley. On Friday night, you might remember that they had a young boy named Kyron who's five years old and has terminal brain cancer. And they really got around him and, and celebrated him. They had him run through the banner with them. His family was with him. They'd flown over from Western Australia. And it was just a beautiful night of footy and kind of reminding everybody of the bigger picture, I guess, and keeping footy in perspective. But there was also a really beautiful moment at the end of the game where Kyron was chaired off and there was this gorgeous photo that Nathan Buckley tweeted out of Trelaw and Pendlebury chairing off Kyron and Buckley tweeted this, all three in this photo have been five-year-olds with stars in their eyes. It was awesome to dedicate last night to Kyron and his family. It was also great to see the humans beneath the armour they wear on the weekends. I am proud of our humans and I just thought Gee, I love Nathan Buckley. I think he seems like a really solid man. It's a metamorphosis with Nathan Buckley, don't you think? Mm. We've seen how how football has actually changed him, how the world and ageing has changed him, but he has embraced the change. And he's actually being really overt and talking about it at the moment. It's really making me love Collingwood, which is very troubling. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, when some of the the best moments I thought this weekend happened after the siren had gone. And one of the other ones was um, James Harms, who, sought out his biggest fan, John, at the end of that Melbourne win and gave him a hug. And it was awesome to see John in his number four Guernsey and just what that meant. But when we're thinking about some of the off-field stuff, I really liked a thread that our friend Rana Hussain had tweeted about 
how important these things are. And I just want to read a little bit of it. She said, the game day show, whether it be the presence of a junior mascot or a dreamtime extravaganza, should point to the heavy lifting we absolutely can do as football clubs and as an industry towards the greater good. Treaty, inclusion, participation, incorporation, it has always been more than a game. My feeling is that our aim should not be that we open our doors to change the lives of some for a day, but that we open our doors to all with the hope of changing ourselves and our game for the better. Oh, wow. She's amazing, isn't she? I spent most of the weekend, we, I was there with Alicia in Clunes Booktown Festival, which was extraordinary and a big shout out to Clunes for putting on an incredible event. And we were there talking footy, which was a lot of fun, but also <laughs> kind of ironic because we spent most of the weekend running around trying to find, like with our hands, our phones up in the air, trying to get internet <laughs> coverage. coverage to get scores <laughs> and having... Um, Tony Birch is, you know, quite an esteemed author in the middle of his talks, kind of shouting at me across the stage that I need to check the score for him. And <laughs> I'm like, I can't get coverage. And yeah, a lot of the football for me was after the game. And, and so I didn't actually watch the ones that hurt the most. We had a couple of close ones, didn't we, that were a bit hard to take in. Did you take in Aaron Norton's amazing effort for the Bulldogs? I did. <laughs> five goals. Oh, no. He most, kicked five goals. Nine, most, nine contested, contested possessions. Positions. Which I think is second only to someone else who got ten. <laughs> Thanks, someone, man. But Aaron Norton is only nine years old. Nine, nine. <laughs> That's amazing. That's That's amazing. Amazing. I really missed it. No, it was nine contested possessions. Nineteen. See, years one old. for each Stop year. Numbers. One for each year of his life. What an <laughs> extraordinary achievement! You really proved you the stats woman today. <laughs> I will say this, I heard someone say he had hands of Velcro and it's like everything just stuck on that day. It was like everything was just came together. It, he was extraordinary. And that's actually the reason why I was singing up there, Kazali, because it reminded me that when you see something like that, everything, the world falls away, you know, mm-hmm. that you, you can have had a really tough week and you turn on the footy or you tune in and watch a game and you see that and it really takes you away. I'm going to take you back to something that is going to, it literally blew my tiny mind. I could not believe what I was hearing and I did some further investigation which really just involved asking Tess and then going to Twitter. <laughs> but um, So I'm going to give you the, the cheat sheet on this but Danny McGinley who you would know from They Came to Play podcast which is unbelievably good ABC podcast featuring Tess Armstrong and a man called Lemo. Do we call that our cousin pod? Yeah it is our cousin yeah. pod. Danny McGinley uncovered something which was unbelievable. He went into the archives of the AFL and he discovered <laughs> If you don't know this, you better sit down. Sit down. <laughs> that, that there used to be a thing called the challenge system under which if your team finished on the top of the ladder but didn't make it through to the grand final, the grand final would be played and the winner of the grand final could be challenged <laughs> by the person who finished on the top of the ladder, by the team that finished on the top of the ladder. And I kid you not, there are 11 teams in this competition who exercise the challenge rule and actually won a premiership this and way. And overturned the result of the gra- actual Collingwood grand would have five through this method. Mm. I mean, get me an asterisk, someone. <laughs> St Kilda lost St. one. St Kilda, St. Kilda that's heartbreaking. One. I mean, this is heartbreaking. should be like, they should have two premierships in the streets. I, I, I've, I'm almost breathless about it. Imagine <laughs> imagine playing a grand final and going like, well, that's that then. And then you've got your poster. I feel like, you know how retrospectively they changed the rules around the Brownlow where if you were reported but cleared, mm. then they... Re- 
retrospectively granted the um, players. They yes. did that in the quite recently, um, so that you could actually be a Brownlow winner even if at the time you were, were considered ineligible. Yeah. I think they should do this with the premiership, so that the Saints would then get their second premiership. No, I think that's a great idea. They can have a little uh, be up on the steps at um, the town hall and Mm. get a presentation. But you know, the other thing I was thinking: why are we doing AFLX? When we could do this (laughs) challenge system, just do the challenge Mm. system. It takes a certain amount of intestinal fortitude or arrogance, actually, (laughs) (laughs) to challenge, doesn't it? To say, like, I'm not happy with that, and I'm going to give it a crack. Mm. I'm okay with the rule as long as if you challenge and lose, you're ruled out of the next season. Oh, nice. Double or nothing. There has to be a disincentive. So it could have happened last year. Richmond could have challenged one. It reminds me of, like, that empty feeling, you know, when you just put a draw four on a draw four. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like yeah. it's so like, unsatisfying. It's kind of like, but it's also yeah. like whether in Survivor, when you get the immunity, immunity. necklace, mm. whether it really, can, you know, whether it's the same kind of win if you if you win and you're immune that this week. Is, Do you know what I mean? Is it sort wild, of hollow? This is wild, wild, wild west stuff to me. Yeah. Like I am <laughs> quite legitimately yeah, it's wowed quite an extraordinary. by it. I, I, we will retweet. Danny did an amazing yeah, explainer video <laughs> for TV, and um, I mean, no one's going to believe that I'm saying this. Yeah, this but is Danny's got cred. But Danny, I mean, Danny he's sitting cred. behind. He's got <laughs> He's I'm, a white man sitting behind I, a desk. Right. How can we not believe him? I must say I'm not convinced that it's real until I watch the video. I'm not sure that I trust you. No, I don't trust you either. Okay, you ready to melee? Get in. Last week, South African 800-metre runner Kasta Semenya lost her appeal against an International Association of Athletics Federation ruling, which states that for her to continue to compete as a woman, she would need to lower her testosterone levels through medical intervention. We were waiting for this decision to be handed down. It has shocked a lot of us, no one more maybe than Kate Sear, <laughs> who we challenged to dive straight into this to be able to really give us a thorough kind of picture of all of the implications in what's, I mean, we could do a five-hour podcast <laughs> on this. Kate, where do you want to take this conversation? Well, let me start off by just recapping the basic facts and then I'll give you the basics of the decision. So the basic facts are that she's a South African middle distance athlete who sprung to prominence in 2008 when she won gold in 800 metres at the Junior World Athletics Championships. And then she followed that up a a year later when she won gold in the World Championships as an 18-year-old. And her competitors then asked some questions about her sex, essentially whether she was really a woman. And the athletics governing body, the IAAF, then asked her to undergo sex verification tests. And the results of that were never publicly released, but some information was leaked and the suspicion was that Semenya was intersex. Basically, then a really long and complex story unfolded. But the basic critical point was that the IAAF decided to develop some guidelines governing the eligibility of females with hyperandrogenism. And and so that's a condition in which women have Uh, levels of hormones such as testosterone in their system that are above the normal range uh, or the average range in women. Another athlete was captured by these guidelines and that was an athlete called Duti Chand who's an Indian runner and so she challenged them. She went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport which despite its name is not a court actually it's a private arbitration system but she went there in 2014, challenged them and said those were discriminatory, breached her rights and so on. She won. 
And Kaz told the IAAF to go back to the drawing board and try and develop some different guidelines. So they did. And they then released those new regulations and they very much seemed targeted at Semenya because they targeted events she competed in. So Semenya then decided to challenge again. So back to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Semenya's argument simply was that the rules were discriminatory because they targeted the intersex population or people with differences of sex development. She also argued that they discriminated against women and that they discriminated against people who had certain innate biological characteristics like naturally higher levels of testosterone than the average range. The IAAF, on the other hand, said, look, these rules might be unfair, um, but they're necessary in order to preserve the integrity of sport. They said competitions have to be fair and that it would be unfair for other women to have to compete against Semenya given her natural advantages. Actually, this process of kind of scrutinising and policing women's bodies and trying to draw boundaries around how we determine who gets to be categorised as a woman or classed as a woman for the purposes of sport and who does not has a much longer history. And Em, you pointed me to a really interesting podcast about that this week called Today Explained by Vox. On that podcast, Katrina Carcasis talked a little bit about this history based on a book that she wrote with Rebecca Jordan Young called Testosterone, an Unauthorised Biography. And I just want to play that grab for you now to set the scene. For a long time, I think it's important to know that in women's elite sport, there has been something called sex testing or gender verification. This has really been from the time that women entered elite sport almost 100 years ago. And the idea was men might masquerade as women, might try to compete as women and that you needed some criterion by which you could determine women's eligibility. That might be whether or not a woman was deemed appropriately feminine and there were certificates of femininity. It didn't last for very long, but there were actually physical exams of women, but it was never testosterone alone. When sports governing bodies stopped mandatory testing of all women, They kept this ad hoc testing, which is how Castor Semenya was investigated. There were actually some women athletes who proposed testosterone, and it was rejected for the exact same reasons that people have critiqued it today. Men's and women's levels overlap. It is not a key enough determinant of athleticism to use this as a criterion, you know, by which to exclude women from the category. So the decision was released last week, as you said, Em, and Semenya lost her challenge. Now, the actual judgment of Kaz goes for 165 pages, and to date they haven't released the full judgment. We're going to read it for you now. (laughs) (laughs) But they have released a six-page executive summary online, and everyone can can go and have a look at that. Writing for The Guardian, Andy Bull explained that really the whole decision seems to turn on one little word, which is in the first paragraph of that executive summary, and that's the word, but... It says, the panel found that the regulations are discriminatory, but on the basis of the evidence submitted by the parties, such discrimination is a necessary, reasonable and proportionate means of achieving the legitimate objective of ensuring fair competition in female athletics in certain events and protecting the protected class of female athletes in those events. So in other words, the rules are fine. Semenya does have a right not to be discriminated against, but that's trumped by the rights of the majority. Mm. And this kind of balancing exercise is actually typical of human rights cases more generally. So we know now that if Semenya wishes to continue running 
running, she's got a few options. These include competing against men if she can qualify for the men's events or undergoing hormonal therapy to reduce her level of testosterone back into that apparently sort of so-called normal range. Writing for Slate, Victoria Jackson called this decision the culmination of a decade-long humiliation of Casta Semenya. People have rightly pointed out that the case does look at what it means to be a woman, but that it can also have implications for women with other elevated levels of testosterone for other reasons, including women who have medical conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome. But if you'll allow me, I just want to focus on one aspect of the case that troubles me, and that's the idea that uh, she might take hormones in order to compete. I think that question of treatment is one that has been glossed over a little bit. You know, just kind of reading some of the discussion, I think many people seem to assume that although it might be an imposition for Semenya to take some hormonal therapy, it's actually not that big of a deal. There is one exception. The World Medical Association has come out and said that doctors around the world should not implement these guidelines because they breach her human rights and, and the rights of other athletes. But we know from the executive summary that the Court of Arbitration for Sport acknowledged that they heard some arguments about the impact of hormonal therapy on women and the side effects of therapy. And they just said, we note those concerns. We don't think that it's disproportionate to ask her to take them. So basically they said, in deciding whether the regulations were proportionate, the regulations, quote, do not require any athlete to undergo any surgical intervention. And what I read this to mean is that surgical intervention might have been quite a big imposition or disproportionate in a human rights sense, but that hormonal treatment is not a big imposition. Hormonal treatment can actually be a really huge deal for women, and women have different experiences of this, of course, but it often comes with a whole load of side effects, and some of those are truly hellish. And so it's at this point that I wanted to share something very personal with listeners on this point. I know that some of our listeners often think about me or have described me as the one who has that voice. Not long ago, we actually had a listener email us to ask about my voice and made a little joke about it. So the truth is that, yes, I actually do have a different kind of voice and there's a reason for that. And that is because when I was very young, I was diagnosed with an incurable gynecological disease called endometriosis. Something like 6 to 10% of the female population have that disease. I had to undergo several operations when I was younger and a lot of hormonal treatment. Functioning from month to month is quite hard because it, it makes me pretty sick. The point was that the treatment I underwent back then was really horrendous and, and life-changing for me. And one of the side effects of the hormonal treatment that I took was that it permanently and irreversibly damaged my voice box. So I actually have a totally different voice to the one that I was born with. People that I grew up with often point that out, how strange it is to them. But among other things, what it means is that my voice is now it's croaky, it's wobbly, it often cracks, and sometimes my voice just totally gives out on me. I can't raise my voice. I often can't speak very loudly in social settings and people can't hear me in social settings and I find that really difficult. I also can't talk for very long because if I do, my voice just totally gives out and often at the end of the day I have very little voice. And when I'm tired, I really struggle to raise my voice. It's often painful, actually physically painful, um, but it's also really embarrassing for me because people often point it out. So the point I wanted to make is that Hormonal treatment is okay for some people, I know that, but for a lot of people it's actually a really big deal and it often leads to these kind of life-changing permanent side effects. And the fact that the Court of Arbitration for Sport would, would gloss over this 
as something that Semenya should to just do is is really troubling to me. The idea that forcing it upon women so that they comply with some kind of arbitrary idea of what womanhood should look like is not okay to me and it, and it is not proportionate to the apparently legitimate objective of fair sport. What is fair about that? All of this is apparently necessary because we operate in a sex-segregated system that permits only two ways of being, that is male or female, and it draws boundaries around the, the both. And what this means is that sport is utterly unforgiving of the square peg trying to fit into the round hole. And rather than making space for the square peg and respecting difference and diversity, sport demands sameness no matter what the costs. So a lot of people have said that the case raises really major human rights questions for women, and I think that's true. But I think it's also even more significant than that because it actually takes us into the realm of what it means to be human. And in Castor Semenya's case, human rights have been deployed in ways that pit her against the majority and then undermine her, not just as a woman, but really as a human being. She has rights, but not rights that hold unless she is prepared, and this is the critical bit, to be differently human. Mm. And that is just wrong. And I think the case is therefore a disaster for human rights in sport, not just because it shows that rights can be recognised and then tossed away in the same breath, but because it shows that people aren't recognised for who they are. They're only recognised for the extent to which they're prepared to conform to social norms. And what this means ultimately is that the result stands now not in spite of human rights, but because of them, because of the way human rights were interpreted here, because of who gets recognised as human and who does not. Oh, Katie. It looks like we gave the right person the job. (laughs) Thank you for that. The things that I took away from it firstly were thanks for sharing your personal story. It's incredibly brave. There's not a dry eye in the studio and we really appreciate you putting yourself on the line like that because I think for a lot of people who listen to this podcast, they are square pegs in round holes. And what we try to do is say that sport is something that we can all enjoy and what this ruling has demonstrated is that you can only enjoy it if you fit into a certain category and you've really illustrated that and that there is ongoing issues with trying to make people adhere to rules that have been created to keep this kind of archaic system because sport should be for everyone. The one thing that I wanted to bring up was that in that podcast that you um, referenced is that there's some really interesting conversation about testosterone. It's worthy to remember that both people born with XY and XX chromosomes have testosterone. Testosterone is not just reserved for the male body. Testosterone is sometimes called the male hormone, which is not. It's just a hormone. Or the male sex hormone. And it does feel like it's attached with ego. This week after seeing the Castor Semenya decision handed down, I felt like everywhere I looked, I was seeing people, men especially, policing women's bodies in lots of different news stories that added to this picture that I was a body of evidence, if you will. One was a story by Felicity Harley in Women, where she was talking about the health minister for New South Wales, Brad Hazard, who is dismissing calls by the opposition to trial pharmacists prescribing one-off repeats of the contraceptive pill and antibiotics for urinary tract infections, and also that that abortion is still included in the Crimes Act. 
in New South Wales and that they're yep. still looking to uh, to change that. And then Rebel Wilson, interestingly enough, completely an outside example, but she was talking about in her new movie, The Hustle, because there was boobs featured and talk of boobs, the rating was initially given to her for that movie as an R rating and she basically went and found a body of evidence of movies, mostly starring Will Ferrell, I would imagine, um, <laughs> took them back and, and did this, in her words, I did this massive presentation and analysis of films starring men and women and proved that they were being sex and they overturned it and changed it straight away. But just the mere mention of boobs was put on the same level as, you know, some violence, orgy scenes, foul language. Mm. It's interesting to see these sporting organisations being so pervasive and, and prescriptive around women's bodies and then the alternative <laughs> where perhaps they need to be a bit more involved in um, an example that uh, happened recently was Raylene Boyle during the week was uh, awarded the Australian Olympic Committee's Order of Merit. Raylene Boyle is, you know, a great champion of athletics, three-time silver medalist. During her speech, she addressed the president of the um, International Olympic Committee, Thomas Buck, who had appeared for the event, saying that it was time that the IOC did the right thing by the athletes competing at the time of the East German drug cheat era in the 1970s. Let's just have a quick listen to Raylene. This whole East German thing should be readdressed. It is all outlined in the museum. You go, you pull out drawers, you can see what the women were taking, why they were running so fast. And I, I really think that our family of the past deserve to be re-looked at. And I do in many ways feel let down by both the IOC and WADA. In response to that, Buck said, who's a lawyer in another life, said that it was too late to change the past because the statute of limitations had expired. So the case was closed, um, which I think is probably a slightly less than satisfactory response given the enormity of the crimes. But it's interesting to see the contrast where they're, where they're quite prepared to step back in other situations and are more pervasive. I was fascinated in that Fox podcast where they talked about the difference in the way that male athletes who are also outliers, um, for want of a better term, have been treated. And there's a really interesting um, piece where they talk about Michael Phelps and the fact that, you know, they really celebrate his biological and genetic gifts and where he is different and that they really see that that makes him a champion. But a lot of the talk really reminds me also of how running has always been policed very, very strictly women have been excluded from running a lot of the times based on paternalistic ideas of, of safety. I recall Catherine Switzer talking about how she was asked by her doctor, why do you want to run? You're going to run the risk of damaging your uterus. There is really strong history from the amateur athletics union in America who always sought to restrict women from being able to run in events that were, of a, you know, that were longer, but also an idea that they shouldn't be allowed to run with men because they may contaminate the field in the same way that they didn't want amateurs running with professionals. And I'd just like to finish on one little topic that um, it's a story that Alicia raced with us this mm. week. In the London Marathon, we had a woman, Jessica Anderson, who was a nurse who was aiming to break a Guinness World Record for the fastest marathon by a woman wearing a nurse's uniform. She actually did this. So she ran the race um, in three hours, eight minutes and 22 seconds, beating the record by 32 seconds. But the Guinness World Records rejected her attempt because she ran wearing what she wears as a nurse, which is blue scrubs, as opposed to what the Guinness World Records thought she should be wearing as a nurse. And that is a dress and a pinafore and potentially a cap. 
What is great about this story <laughs> is I just that can't even. I know, <laughs> the eye rolling eye in here roll. is so bad. I think we may have my we eyes have rolled. My eyes have just rolled down <laughs> the street. Have to go and retrieve them from South Melbourne. <laughs> um, the great part about that story is that it did raise a lot of criticism, and Guinness World Records has said we may need to look at our criteria. But it's also said, you know. Men can be nurses. Mm. Can they? Yes. <laughs> but it, it harks back to this idea of what is feminine. Yeah, mm. it sure does. To close off this conversation, let's hear from Casta Semenya herself. Will it be easier for you if I wasn't so fast? Will it be simpler if I stopped winning? Will you prefer I hadn't worked so hard or just didn't run or chose a different sport or stopped at my first steps? That's too bad because I was born to do this. Look, I don't love Essendon, but you remember that time when Joe Watson wore the feminist hat? Sure do. Gee, I mm, loved that. What a moment. It's great. And then overnight, Zach Merritt has penned the most amazing, beautiful column, and I feel like it's a love letter to me because <laughs> how often have I said, please, men, could you please use your megaphones of privilege to talk about um, gender equality? And he's written this amazing article. It was posted by Fox Sports. He talks about the women that he played football with growing up. But more than that, he talks about making a pledge, saying, join me. He's saying you should know this about me. I'm not going to let you get away with saying sexist jokes. I'm going to step up for gender equality and I'm going to be really vocal and visible about it and I hope that you'll join me. But if you want to know me, you need to know this about me. He dropped the article at about five o'clock last night, Lucy. It was about that. Yes, that's correct. And universally, we posted it, but it's just gone gangbusters. And, you know, of course, this is the work that women do all the time. So I'm giving him as much credit as is due for this woke kind of speech, but it's really important and it means that it's not just Ben Brown out Mm. on an island by himself spruiking this stuff. We have posted it. I implore you to read it, but it is really game changing and it made me feel a lot of feelings. Lots of them. A lot of hope. It's the kind of conversation that we've been really asking for and um, something that really feeds in well with the work that Our Watch does and coming up, we are going to speak to Patty Kinnersley, who is the CEO of Our Watch. I'm Chelsea Roffey. You're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Welcome to The Outer Sanctum. Patty Kinnersley, who is the CEO of Our Watch. She's a Blues board member and an exceptional footballer. How are you, Patty? I'm well, thanks. Lovely to be here. Now, the reason why we reached out to you was there are so many things that we could talk about. But there's something that I've noticed at the football recently. Our Watch is rolling out a campaign, which is that doing nothing does harm campaign. And I've seen it advertised at the football. I've seen it um, popping up around the grounds, quite literally. What is that campaign about? And why are you targeting it at the football? Great. So happy to see that you've noticed that I noticed it myself when I was there the other day. As the country really moves towards wanting to do something about violence against women and gender equality, people have stopped saying to us now, oh, yeah, but does it matter? And is it a real thing? And it's not my job anyway. And they're now saying, yeah, Patty, we've got it. But what do we do? What do we do in our workplaces? What do we do in our schools? And what do we do in our social settings? So when we did some research, we found that nearly 80% of Australians wanted to do something, but only 14% felt like they would. And that's that whole thing about not wanting to be the fun police or what if I say something that makes it worse or I'm not really sure what I should do or say. So the Doing Nothing Does Harm campaign is really about giving people a really practical example of what you can do, especially in that social setting. There, there are some short clips that depict you know, a setting we've all been in at dinner where somebody says something really ridiculous, the disrespectful comment about women or the joke about women, and you all kind of sit around and go, ah, oh, what should I say? Or I should have said something and I didn't. And it's based on 
I call it the three S's for my own remembering about you can show you don't want to be a part of it. So look away or roll your eyes or what have you. You can support the woman mostly who's in that situation and go, oh, I don't agree with what Frank just said or actually support her later. Or if you're feeling like comfortable enough, you can actually say something and say, well, what did you mean by that joke? Or I'm not on board with that. Or it's really a basic sort of picture that, that helps people to know what they can do in their own setting. One of the things um, that we've talked about a lot this year, Patty, has been online comments that women athletes have to deal with almost three times as much as as male athletes. And one of the statistics really highlights that a high percentage of the abuse that women cop online um, is sexist in nature. What sort of actions do you think we could be taking as organisations, as clubs and as individuals to deal with that kind of behaviour? Yeah, it's so important. And it's not only athletes, it's women in the media, as you probably know, politicians. Female politicians can expect to be threatened with rape once a week. You know, it's extraordinary. So I think there's a whole range of ways that we need to address this. If you're in an organisation yourself, you need to make sure that you've got the right filters and so forth and that you're talking with people. It's not good enough just to say to people to get offline because online is real life for many people. Then we've got the legislative environment. So the eSafety Commissioner is really looking closely at what we can do about that. And then there's also people like yourselves, but the incident with Taylor Harris, where we actually use that to amplify what's really going on. So it's definitely about keep raising the awareness, but look at the structural things you can do in your own life, but also in your organisations if you're leading organisations. Paddy, we often don't do stats and facts on this show, particularly about about footy. But I wonder if I can just share a couple of stats, which I know you'll know, but our listeners might not have heard before. And these come from the National Community Attitude Survey, which is done regularly and the last results were released about six months ago. And there just were so many statistics in that survey that disheartened me, to say the least. Mm. One of them is that one third of Australians believe that if a woman doesn't leave an abusive partner, then she is responsible for the continuation of any violence. And two in five people believe that women make up reports of sexual assault in order to punish men. Where did attitudes like this come from? And put simply, how through sport in particular might we try and tackle them? Uh, it's really good to bring those stats up because we think people say, oh, feminism's done, equality's done, can't we move on? But it's not, and those stats show us that. And we also know that higher levels of violence are quite consistent with gender inequality. And so that's that really strong link. Um, so sport has such a powerful influence on this country. It's in our DNA. We're a bit crazy about it. We love it. We learn from our role models in that way. If you look at the Taylor Harris example or um, young men who are starting to speak out, like Zach Merritt and his article today. But sport is one of those places where we have our sense of self and our sense of being tested and challenged or tested and reinforced. So when we go to the footy and you yell at something sexist, if people laugh, we know that's okay and we've got a sense of self about that and we keep going with it. Whereas if we yell at the sexist joke or the racist joke or the homophobic joke and people go, hey, that's not okay, then we know that we have to start amending. So sport has an incredibly powerful reach. And you know, you've talked about it so much here about the little girls now have Darcy Vessio's number on their back. You know, I grew up with Bruce Dool's number on my back. That's cool. He was awesome. But it's so amazing to be able to, for little girls to see other women. So sport is incredibly powerful. I think alongside media, probably like no other setting in this country. And so it's really powerful. Sport, as you say, is really powerful as a place where people come together and a message can be delivered. Um, in particular, the AFL has a very prominent role in this country. What do you see as an organisation that they could be doing 
or are doing in this space? I think the AFL is doing a really good job and can always keep improving. There's no exemplar. So people often say to me, why are you working with them? Look what they're doing or what they're not doing. I say, yes, but it's a a really big and influential organisation and they're doing something. And so the respect and responsibility policy is a like a policy lever they're pulling, but it is driving change. They've released a gender equality strategy. That's really important. They'll need to keep improving the AFLW, but we all know that and we're all on that. And I don't think anyone's going to let them off the hook. And we need them to take really strong leadership stance when something happens. So when the Taylor Harris situation happens, we do need... Gil McLaughlin as the CEO to say, we don't support that. We're not behind that. They're doing some really amazing things and we'll want them to keep doing that because they are really powerful and influential. In her essay on violence, Natasha Stott-Despoia writes that if work around respectful relationships is reinforced by programs for young people in sporting clubs, then the impact is magnified. That's a big job for community clubs. What sort of advice would you give them, like practical advice on how they make sure that they're reinforcing the good stuff? One of our roles as our watch is not to be everywhere and do everything, but it's actually to provide the tools and resources for other people to do their work. And so we try and make that really accessible and usable. So we would always say, connect with our watch or go online, have a look at what our tools and resources are and build from there. So we're not expecting people to have huge resources, but as long as people are interested and as long as they're addressing what we know drives violence against women, then they'll be on the right track. The other thing to do is to talk to your neighbour who's already doing it. North Melbourne Football Club have got a gender equality strategy that is based around Change the Story, which kind of tells us what we need to do to reduce violence against women. And they have connected that with their shin bonus spirit. Now, I've said this before, I never would have imagined our work would have been attached to the shin bonus spirit. (laughs) But actually what it demonstrates is that clubs, sporting organisations need to connect it to their DNA. And they've done that really well and that's why it'll get purchased in their club. I remember sporting companies some years ago that promoted the idea that girls who participate in sport are less likely to be victims of family violence. I've not seen any research to support that, but is there a correlation between participation and your ability to kind of be more agent in your own lives? Um, I don't know the data on that as well and I'd, I'd be happy to follow up with that. But what we do know is that one of the drivers of violence against women is the rigid gendered stereotypes. So women shouldn't play football because that's what boys do. You know, or and women should do this. so. When you're able to work through that and actually say, what we want is every woman to be who she wants to be, and we provide the ability to do that, then your sense of self is stronger, and you're in a better position to make good decisions about all aspects of your life. And that's what we're seeing so powerfully with the AFLW that little girls just know they can grow up and play sport if they want to. They don't have to. It's not that I think great every little girl's going to play football now. She knows she can, and there's not something that's limiting her in that. The stat is one woman a week is dying at the hands of an intimate partner or relative. It's a horrific stat and it can feel overwhelming because Australia is living to that stat and sometimes it's two a week. The female voices are really loud in this space. The male voices need some work on catching up. But let me just ask you this. Is violence against women preventable? Yes, it is. Violence against uh, women is not a condition of being a human. And I think that's one of the really powerful things about Natasha Stott Despoy's book, that it actually talks about how each of us can do something. It is overwhelming if you look at the fact that 17 women in Australia already have been murdered at the hands of a partner or former partner this year. That is overwhelming. But actually, if we say 
Each of us has our little bit to do. Don't worry about other people's bits. Do your bit, do it really well and understand that it's connected. So if you're a school teacher, you're doing respect for relationships in school. If you're a parent, you're modelling healthy relationships. If you're a sporting organisation, you're removing barriers that stop women participating. If you're a politician, you're thinking about gender in your policies. Everybody's got a piece of the puzzle to do. Some bits are corner pieces and we need people to stand up, but every bit of the puzzle puzzle have to be done. I say I want 80% of people to understand the drivers of violence against women. I want them to understand their sphere of influence, whether it's as a parent or a coach or the prime minister. And then I want them to do something. And if we all just do those three things, we're going to be a long way down the track. Your connection to football is very deep, runs very deep. We know that you've been an excellent player mm-hmm. and that you're very reluctant to talk about it, that you're currently on the board of Carlton, which I'm sure intersects with your work with Our Watch. But one really important sticking question that I have is that you have played for Melbourne Uni and you also played for the Darabin Falcons. This oh, wow. is a very rare double. <laughs> are you a Felk or are you a mugger? Um, um, well, I'm I'm so sorry to be able to say I actually played for Ballarat Lions and Darabin oh. and would never have played for me, Melbourne. <laughs> Where did I get that bad mail from? Probably your friend Shiloh Curtis might have made that up, but it's not true. <laughs> my friend Shiloh um, Curtis probably did make that up. I'm both. Because I'm a country person in my heart, I'll always be a Ballarat person, but Darabin Falcons are certainly an organisation I'm really deeply connected to and I'm, I'm going to their present their event soon to talk about Pride. Yeah, there's going to be an amazing event, which I'm looking forward to emceeing. I'll probably make a complete meal of that and make up some <laughs> stats as well. Paddy, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you making time. The frameworks that are developed and implemented by Our Watch and all of the resources are used by the Outer Sanctum a lot and we rely on your voice and you've made it really easy for us to be able to share the story and to change the story. So thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we're going to go around the grounds. I'm Adam Seld and I'm head of female football at the West Coast Eagles. Adam, welcome to the Outer Sanctum. Look, I don't want to be controversial, but you are our favourite Selwood. (laughs) (laughs) Not many people say that, so I'll definitely take it. (laughs) Well, you should take it. The first time Lucy and I met you, we were sitting on a park bench watching under... 16 girls, I think, and we started talking about women's football and it was clear that you were very passionate. I know that you would have been very disappointed when um, the West Coast Eagles didn't get a licence for the AFLW, but instead of asking you how disappointed you were about that, I'm going to ask you, how ready are you to enter the AFLW? Good question. I mean, you always ask yourself, you know, if we were to play in in a few weeks' time, are we ready to go? And Although we, we still have to hit the quota of players, the resourcing and, and staff that we have in our programs and you know, the level of conversation that we are having is pretty much there. It's ready to go. It's been obviously strongly endorsed by a board and, and CEO where last night we had the induction evening with our AFLW signings. It was great to sort of get them into the room and just really, I guess, make this feel more of a, a team and, and the processes are all underway and yeah, I think, you know, with having uh, Luke Dwyer, our head coach, our line coach is all set to go, um, Jan Cooper, our player development manager, and then our operations coordinator in Michelle Phillips. Everyone's doing their bit, everyone knows their role, and uh, we're really excited for the future. Adam, it's Lucy here. I note that the West Coast Eagles has had a second generation academy going for quite some time, and so that has meant that players that are eligible via the father-son rule can come in, but you've also been inviting father-daughter potential players into the club for the last few years. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? Who might we see? 
Yeah, well, it's sort of just been a natural progression for the club that we, we invited our past players' sons, went back about 10 years ago, and that was under the guidance of Brad Smith, one of our recruiters, and then it sort of moved into my area once I went to uh, the academy space and then female football and developing, you know, it was only, I guess, the right thing to do and a natural thing to invite uh, the daughters of past players where Grace Turnbull, Ryan Turnbull's young daughter, has, has been in the academy for three years. We've had uh, John Worthfold's young daughter, Charlie, she's been involved, and also uh, Jason Ball's daughters. Some past champions, more of the 90s at the moment. Yeah, Michael Braun and Casey Green, their daughters were through, but they're only nine or ten years old. So we'll just let them, I <laughs> guess, just engagement <laughs> with the game and then uh, enjoy the football club. Uh, enjoy what, I guess, our family and our club's all about. And one day, hopefully, we, we see some players represent the Eagles. But that's not the purpose behind it. It's more about engagement and uh, connection to the club. Hi, Adam. It's Nicole here. You mentioned you, that your switch into women's football development. What, what brought you to the women's game? So I, I was coaching uh, development at the club for three years post my football and really enjoyed, I guess, the coaching element and, and in staying involved with the playing group. But I, I needed another challenge. I needed one. It was either going to leave West Coast and join another club and um, meet a new playing group or I always had in my mind my football progression would head into more management and admin and which led me to the pathway of junior development. And once I got into the junior development pathways and understood, you know, the female football and how fast it was growing and I get just the energy, um, the, the way that, the, you know, the young female players are taking up the game and, and what they were looking for. And I guess once you coach them, how um, absorbed they were in the game, it was just a natural link for me that really got me going. And uh, the fact that we're progressing to get an AFLW team has allowed me to sort of be in the position on our end where you look after AFLW, but you've also got your eye on what the pathway development's like and, and where we can contribute. Adam, it's Kate here. One of the things that I've loved over the first three seasons of the AFLW is seeing what feels like a really exponential rise in skills. On every statistical measure, things are improving. So I wonder if you can look into your crystal ball and tell us what do you think is the, the game is going to look like in 2020? And also, how do you prepare for that when preparing women who aren't in the, the mix of that competition as it's been you know, exponentially increasing in skills? Yeah, I think the development of the game has really come from the fitness space of the players that you can see in terms of the way they're running and then covering the ground and you know, leading at the player. The intensity has just gone up. We've had a high-performance academy uh, running now for uh, two years, but the, the group that we've been working with at the moment has, has been operating since January. And, and we said, if, if you're not focused on the conditioning side of the game and, and we'll teach you and guide you how you, know, you need to run and the things that we, we're looking for, it's going to be really hard to jump from state league level to AFL. That's probably going to be a focus for us initially for the first couple of years in the season in our entry into the competition is to make sure that we have the girls conditioned. And, and that's not just fitness, but that's uh, with their injury uh, prevention, their injury rehab, their, their work in the weight to ensure their bodies can cope with the demands of the game. And we're still firm believers of the fundamentals of skill in terms of making sure they get a lot of volume in their training whether that be kicking, marking, handballing, that we'll be more focused on that 
um, strategy rather than too much of a game sense or, or game strategy because if you can execute your skill, you can pretty much incorporate any game plan that a coach will put in front of you. Adam, do you think it's been in some ways a benefit to sit back and watch the other AFLW clubs go at it and know that you're coming into the competition next year? Has there been a little learnings for you guys? There has, yeah. I mean, one, we say we're disappointed, but you've also got to look at what the opportunity was by sitting back and not being in the competitions. To understand where the gaps have been for, for years one to three is really important for us to ensure that we're not making the same mistakes as previous clubs have had or have made. Also recognising the development of programs and, and how they have improved from year one to three. And, you know, Fremantle are a classic case in that, that um, they've had a, a massive spike uh, this year with the level of investment and a couple of tweaks and changes to their program. So when it goes, you know, I guess the development of a program that we don't have to look too far. We just need to recognise what's important, what are the girls looking for, what can be achieved. Uh, what type of support they need both on and off the field. And um, we think we can really design a strong program around that. Now, Adam, you probably don't know this, but um, our podcast consists of six women, three of us are sisters. Um, our love of football has been the cornerstone of our relationship and um, we've been so passionate about footy for so many years. It's kind of, it's just part of our family. Given that you're from a football dynasty of Selwoods, <laughs> how, mu- how much has your shared passion kind of spurred the, all of you on to continue working in football? It- Definitely, it's always been there. We say to our wives, it's, are you sure you want to marry us? Because you're marrying football um, <laughs> along with the family. So, look, we've, we've always grown up, obviously, country Victoria, been around balls and sport, and we always had the, the dream and the ambition to be AFL players. And I guess the transition out of the game, uh, it was just part of my DNA to, to stay connected, whether that be as a coach or somewhere uh, within the industry. It's, yeah, interesting. My brother's obviously head off. My twin brother has gone off to be a recruiter for the Geelong Cats. Now I'm, you know, in women's football and I'm sure my, my other two brothers might head off in their own direction in sport. It's not to say that we're always just going to be a player that turns into a coach and a senior coach, but the beauty of uh, AFL football now, there's so many different arms to it and um, we've all got our own drive within the industry, which is, um, yeah, really nice. And it's also good, uh, I think, around a Christmas <laughs> um, I able to talk about something different, but it does lead to football in the end too. And I know our, our partners do roll their eyes when it gets to too much football talk. Ours too. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to hear what's happening over in the West. We can't wait for you to be part of the competition. And before we go, can you please send our very best to Michelle Cowan and Jan Cooper, who are two of our favourites here at yeah. the Outer Sanctum. Thanks for joining us, Adam. No worries. They're terrific people. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Now we all know the answer to who's your favourite Selwood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no question. Okay, ladies, have you got any final business? I just wanted to give a plug for myself. Can I do that? Oh, go ahead. Is that allowed? Yeah. I'm really honoured to have been asked by the Freilich Project, which is up at Australian National University in Canberra, to deliver the annual Alice Tay Human Rights Lecture, which I'm delivering on the 29th. <laughs> Thank you. I'm curtsying as you clap. 29th of May, so it'll be in Canberra. I'm actually going to be talking about human rights in sport. It's free to come along, so you can find information online. Book through Eventbrite. And please, if you're in Canberra, come and join us. I'm so honoured to be sitting next to you, Katie. Oh, um, so much so that I stole Ditto. your... I'm stealing your segment. I'm jumping in on Period Watch, which oh, is not oh, just your segment. It's yeah, Period sorry. Watch is my baby. I mean, yeah. she can have Omen Watch, sorry. but come yeah. on. I keep getting YouTube mixed up.
So the Victorian Women's Trust is working on a book called About Bloody Time, The Menstrual Revolution, and it's exploring menstrual health and breaking down the taboos around periods. So I've encouraged you to get on Victorian Women's Trust website and have a look just to see the progress of the book. It's incredible how little information there is out there. So looking forward to that one. Coming up later this month in Melbourne is Move in May, which is an inclusive event for anyone who believes in equality. It culminates with a lap of the tan, which you can run or walk or you don't have to do if you don't want. But it this event is taking place on Sunday, the 26th of May. It starts at 10.30. If you want to come along, just Google Move in May and then you can register. Children under 13 are free. But there will be coffee, there will be food, there will be a run or a walk, there will be entertainment and there will be dancing. And it is run by our very good friend, Angie Green, who was our second guest ever on the pod. And we love the work that she does with stand-up events because it's all about stamping out homophobic language and attitudes in schools and sport and that is work we get behind. Yeah, mm. it's a beautiful rainbow party and if you've ever seen the movie Trolls, it's like when the trolls all get together <laughs> and have a big party and there's <laughs> in a glitter factory. rainbows and Auntie Green mm. is kind of, I always think that she's like Princess Poppy. She is. Oh, I've already booked my ticket so I challenge you all to come and join me. It Jump is on. the best. Just a little shout out, a hark back to something that we, well, we bang on about it every year but you know when North Melbourne played Geelong and it's <laughs> Chris Scott versus Brad Scott. There's it's only not. one thing we can call it. It is the Mary Kate and Ashley Cup. So choose your favourite from Full House and all the other things that she did. They did. She did. She, no, they're two. They people. just pretended to be one person. But you're they're a, actually you're two. a twin, Nicole. I'm a twin. On the twin hotline, who's going to win it? <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to go for uh, Mary Kate. Which one's that? <laughs> It's confusing. But I was always confused that if you had twins, why would you give one two, two names, names and the other one one name? I know. I thought that was confusing. I thought they were triplets, yeah, like to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Mary, Mary Kate, 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 Kate and Ashley. Ashley yep. Triplets. And also, so Brad is B for Barden's True. <laughs> Just harking back to, to Bollingwood. Conferencing. Yes. Conferencing. To take us out um, today, I think we will be playing something that I discovered this week is absolutely beautiful. It's a song that's been released by Paul Kelly and Dan Sultan, and it's called Every Day My Mother's Voice. And it, the inspiration is Adam Goods and a documentary that's coming out about him called The Final Quarter. And the song is beautiful and the film clip is amazing. So enjoy Paul Kelly once again telling our stories through his songs. And thanks very much for joining us. There's only one thing left to say. Go Go footy! deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.